Today, once again, I'm going to preach on all three of the readings, and uh, we don't read often. The readings are from Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible, from the Epistle of James, which we're now reading through uh, in course in the readings, and then from Mark's Gospel, where we have two healing stories. So I, there's a somewhat of a common thread between them. But I thought it just would be good to talk a little bit about each one and, and what it means and do the usual Ralph Cramden thing that if it doesn't, you can't fit a square peg in a round hole, but you can if you force it. So that's what I'll try and do. Uh, I was preparing my sermon, and all this week uh, I've had a little tune running through my head about Proverbs. So this certainly dates me, but I remember when I was a kid watching the Mickey Mouse Club on TV, and whoever the guy was that was the main cheese, the adult in the Mickey Mouse Club, had a song, and let me see if I can sing it. Proverbs, Proverbs, they're so true. Proverbs tell us what to do. Proverbs help us all to be better Mouseketeers. So, uh, I don't think you could get away with that. (laughs) But if you speak, speaking generically, you know, there are lots of proverbs from all kinds of, of traditions, faith traditions and otherwise aphorisms that people live by, you know. I I think you've heard this before. People will say, um, my family certainly did, would say, you know, some people make their own hell on earth. Right? It's an an aphorism. It's actually true, uh, in my opinion. So that's the thing. So, something about the book of Proverbs. Uh, The Proverbs have been attributed in the great tradition to King Solomon, who uh, had a reputation, apparently, for being infinitely wise and all-knowing about many things. Proverbs is the oldest book in what Christians call, when they divide up the Hebrew Bible, the wisdom literature. It's not referred to that in, in Judaism but it's the oldest one of these type of books, and uh, it dates from a long time ago. That's what I'll say right now. And in this today, we have a number of Proverbs that are, you know, what Proverbs are in this particular case have some ethical consequence to them. It means if you do this, this is what will happen. If you don't do this, this is what will happen. So the question I was thinking about when I was writing the sermon was, uh, when we think about that, how do we understand uh, what, what those things mean that way? If you don't do this, this will happen. If you don't, and do the Proverbs represent not some uh, Solomon, who, who didn't write the Proverbs, obviously, but was, uh, you know, God's uh, whispering in his ear and he's writing it down, or do the Proverbs have are, are involve practical wisdom? And by extension, in 2015, uh, do, do each of us have any practical wisdom that we can share with other people from our lived experience? 
And a lot of things that are in, in the Bible, certainly the Hebrew Bible, represent to me a distillation of human experience. I often talk about the story of Abraham and Isaac. You've heard me say this. Uh, it was the custom in Canaanite religion. Abraham was a Canaanite. And when we understand uh, the time in which he was living, or the time historically that's being referred to, it's entirely possible, by the way, that Abraham is a tribal memory or composite. That's not true for Moses. Moses was a historical person, so was Aaron. But the, that, that he represents a composite of great leaders in the ancient world. It was the custom in Canaanite religion to sacrifice their firstborn sons. How do we know? We know because we have found archaeological sites where nine-year-old boys' bones are buried. So people now who have the scientific ability to do that can date this, right? So just think about what, what, what happens. I always want to, it's like the uh, St. Ignatius Loyola. You're sitting there and thinking about something that isn't in the text itself. What do we do when Abraham comes back down the mountain with his son and shows up in the camp after he had taken him off to sacrifice him? And here he is with this boy. So what does, what does he do when his colleague, when his, when his other leaders and, and members of the, of the community, the tribe, say, gee, I see you still have Isaac with you. And he says, yes. Well, why? Because God told me that I didn't have to kill him. I didn't have to sacrifice him. And they say, well, listen, listen, Abraham. All of us have had to sacrifice our firstborn sons. If you don't do this, there's going to be bad juju in this tribe. Right? The crops won't come up. The, the lambs are going to drop. We're going to have lots of trouble here. And you need to do something about all this. So he says to them, you know what? I'm making this all up. He says, I don't believe in the God who is going to require us to sacrifice our firstborn son. What's the issue with him? In the story, Sarah has Isaac when she's 75. She could never get pregnant. He had children by his the, 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 the slave girls. But he had no, children, no issue from Sarah. So this child is very precious to them. And now he's feeling like he, he's being required by the, by the rules to do this. So, the archaeological evidence delivers up to us the fact that if we were to date Abraham at a certain period, or the, the, these composite figures, that subsequent to this, there are no, no places where little boys are buried. The practice ceased, or diminished substantially. So it may be that the way God works in our lives is through the manners, morals, and customs of people. And Proverbs talks about that. 
In just a minute, I'm going to talk about the Epistle of James, but in the Proverbs that we hear today, we talk about, there, there's a, a proverb about equitable treatment uh, uh, of the poor and the consequences for not doing it. There's sort of a karmic aspect to this, in my view. You know karma? Mm-hmm. To, to, to do it in injustice. It, you reap what you sow. You release circumstances in the cosmos that somehow now are going to not redound to your benefit. Right? Sometimes you can release things into the cosmos that will redound to your benefit. You know? Jesus speaks a lot about Christian karma. He talks about it. You know? Not in the sense that uh, a Hindu would describe it to us, probably. But at least he talks about the consequences. You know, uh, Episcopalians properly uh, sit lightly, don't, or at least this Episcopalian, doesn't talk to you always about sin and the consequences of sin and how your postmortem bliss is in jeopardy and that there are many things that you have to do to walk on eggs in order to, to uh, uh, be right with God. But don't mistake that for, for not believing that the consequences or the actions of this life have consequences. They do. And how you realize that may not necessarily be when you go to some other place. You may experience them now and understand that. You know, your actions have consequences. So it's just important to sort of have that back there when we think about uh, this, this thing. Because you're going to hear from James something I say all the time. You know, mercy wins over judgment. Right? When God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. A loving God. That's what we're talking about. So Proverbs uh, tell us some things about how human beings have understood wisdom and have commended uh, wisdom to uh, one another. Uh, wisdom is, is, is personified as a woman in, the pro- in Proverbs. And so uh, there may be some more stuff from Proverbs that allow me to talk about that a little bit uh, later sometime. So we are now in reading through James. It's in, in this cycle of the divine office, we're also reading through James. So I'm getting a double dose of James as we go through the, uh, one of the benefits of reading the divine office, you know, it takes some time, but we're reading now through First and Second Samuel and First Kings, and we're reading all about Solomon, you know. A few days ago, the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and brought a whole lot of spices and, the, and gold and get my goodness gracious me, it's a fun read. So James is talking about something that all of us have to struggle with. First, the proverb says something to us about where does the practical wisdom lead and is God involved in the learnings that we have as human beings about how we convey that wisdom to one another. And in James, he's talking about how do we deal with people in the community that are not like us? And he's particularly focusing on 
people who are less advantaged than we are. You know? As I mentioned last week, Martin Luther did not like this epistle. And I'm not throwing any water on the Lutherans uh, because they will tell you, uh, they will do some theological machinations to tell you that what this means. But let me read to you what one of the, sig the, the, the central passages to this epistle that I know Luther probably got all upset about. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Right? I think most biblical scholars would say that the epistle of James was not directed to any one particular audience, but it's kind of a general moral exhortation about what it is, how you ought to live, and what looms large is uh, care for the poor, care for people who are disadvantaged, and so forth. And in a minute with the gospel, we're going to be talking about people who are not like us that we don't believe are in. And what does that mean? Uh, most of us hang around with people like ourselves. We feel much more comfortable with, with people who are like us, you know, people who are, have a relatively same economic uh, level, that, whose, whose education is fairly similar, whose jobs, you know, are, in, are sort of like each other's in some ways. And we tend to do that. It's natural. In this book, I talk about endlessly the righteous mind, why good people disagree on religion and politics. There's a reason in terms of anthropology why, that ha why we do that. So I don't want to explain all that now other than to make a commercial message for uh, being open to being around people that aren't like us. This is a funny way to describe this. I love to go to the Chinese market in Cupertino Because I don't feel like I'm in there. I mean, I enjoy going, but when you go to a place where all the labels are turned to the Chinese writing, you know that it's... A Who's in there shopping? Right? So it's... I enjoy that feeling, you know? You buy the barbecue pork, and the guy says, chop or no chop. So I'm getting it slowly. The unrecognizable cuts of meat. The vegetables. And the vegetables. <laughs> All of this is extremely good food, by the way. Fish. Yeah, the fish. Swimming in the tanks. So I feel that way, too. And near Santa Maria Urban Ministry, it's changed its name, but there was a place called Supermercado Mexico. It's a little supermarket, Spanish, Mexican supermarket. And you go in there, and you buy the stuff, and you come to the counter to check out, and the, the checker looks at you and says, hola. <laughs> right? 
So that, I mean, I, I'm not going out and having coffee with them, you know, most of it. It, it, it just makes me understand that, you know, who I'm running around with and everything isn't the center of the universe. There are lots of other centers of the universe, right, that are around. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good lesson. And so on. Uh, Nancy and I like to go over to the Richmond district and uh, on uh, Clement around 7th. There's a, the new Maywa market. I love to go there. And uh, all, the, all the stores and the food places and everything, it, it's like, it's just fun. So it's also, though, makes you aware of uh, the diversity and the plurality of things, which forces people to think about the conventional wisdom that they hold about how they relate to one another. <clears throat> you know? That's why it's particularly upsetting uh, that we have a lot of very exclusionary conversation in our public discourse now. It's not healthy. And uh, it, it seems to me at my age that we're just absolutely going backwards in some cases, which is to be regretted. But in James, uh, the writer is talking about the importance of understanding uh, that we need not just to talk the talk, but walk the walk. There's a lot of evidence in the early Christian church that uh, maybe for reasons that are, are beyond what I know in terms of my reading about it, but uh, Christian people seem to have looked after an enormous number of widows and orphans. In fact, in Rome, uh, I, they were looking after, I mean, for a small emerging community, they were looking after like 1,500 or 2,000 widows, seeing that they were looked at. Being a widow in, in, in that time was probably horrendous, right? And so they figured that that was one of the priorities that they should be involved in. But the tendency and the pressure for Christians, just like everybody else, is to associate with the big shots, to cater to the big shots, and to believe that that's what it is that we need to do to get ahead. Right? My grandfather used to, he didn't always follow this rule, but have you ever heard you have to go, get along to go along, or go along to get along, whatever the right way to say that is? You need to, you need to do that. So, you know, we need to think about it in terms of our practical wisdom. So, we have two healing stories today in Mark. And one is the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And the other is the man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. There are two healing stories that are unique to Mark's gospel. And this is the, the second one, the healing of the man who can't, who's deaf and has a, is one of the unique. And it's Mark is performing, or rather Jesus, a manipulation. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, the Syrophoenician woman comes up to Jesus in the story. And she pleads with him to uh, help her because her daughter has a demon and he wants him to cast, she wants him to cast out the demon. She's a Gentile. And Jesus in the story is mean to her. 
tells her, you know, we feed the children first and then uh, the dogs. And she pushes back and said, well, even the dogs hang around under the table and they get the crumbs. And he says, well, because you've been persistent in so many words, uh, oh, you, you're getting it and I go home, I've, your daughter's healed. The demon is, uh, demon is gone. So she does and the, and the little girl's fine. The demon has left her. I'm not so sure, you know, all the biblical scholarship can get in the way of everything, but whether or not Jesus would say something like this is uh, questionable. But there's another way of interpreting this and saying, do we understand Jesus as going through some form of development in terms of living into and understanding his messianic mission? Because he's a human being. Right? And we have signs in other places where he has become impatient and he's lost his temper. So people say, well, he's God, you know, why would he do such a thing and so forth? He's a human being and he may have become impatient or it's possible to believe the other interpretation which is that Mark has a point that he wants to make because Mark is in a community of Hellenized Jews, Jews influenced by Greek uh, culture, and he's there living in a situation where the Gentiles are coming in on the scene and they're, they're believing the message. Right? And Mark is saying, you know, the Gentiles have, are capable of having a strong faith like the Syrophoenician woman the mother of the little girl. And maybe we began, need to think about when he says this, Jesus says this, that uh, the playing field has been leveled. We're not the only special people to God. All people are special to God. And so we need to think about that in that way. Remember I've told you in the original language, Greek, it says Gentile means those people, ethne, those people. So when we read in James about the distinctions that, that are being made, a lot of us say that, don't we? We're sitting in front of the TV and we're saying to each other privately and hopefully not recorded <coughs> things like those people, you know how they get up, right? So Syrophoenician Gentiles are out for, for them and Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case and we need to uh, think about uh, everybody being part of God's plan, everybody unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven, and the relief that that brings to people allows them to be able to share in a distilled human way, as I mentioned earlier, of this great saving message. So the man who's deaf, Jesus takes him aside. You can understand that to mean that God uh, works uh, healing power in a way that is not always obvious or sensational or attention-seeking. He takes the man aside and he performs the manipulation. Here's the thing. Other gospel writers that come after Mark don't like manipulations. And the reason they don't like manipulations is because other healers who were famous at the time of Jesus, healed by manipulation. Okay? 
So most of the time in the other Gospels, Jesus' word is the thing that heals people. He says to them something, and this happens. So in the front of people, there's not something. Well, today he puts his fingers in this guy's ear. He then spits, and then he touches his tongue. And he uses the Aramaic word, Ephatha, be open. You can hear, and you can speak freely. So then he tells everybody not to talk about this. Don't, don't tell anybody this. And they can't stop talking about it, right? Uh, this is a sign in one sense of when your ears are open and you're, you're able to speak, you're talking about something in terms of the processes of God because what happens is that as people speak and listen, they begin to in some way uh, understand things in depth. And they understand things about themselves because they're, they're thinking about it. Have you ever had to, to sit and you're talking to somebody and you're actually working it out through the talking? Right? You're, and as you, do, as you do that and you work it out through the talking, you begin to, oh, you're getting greater clarity yourself, right, in your thinking and how you feel by speaking and giving names to things and doing all of that. So the, in this case, uh, the, the, for the people who were uh, alive then, the, what Jesus did was a sign of what the Messiah does. Brings healing and clarity and, and, and hearing clearly and being able to speak clearly about things, you know? I have always believed that when we're aligned with the Spirit of God, we have a greater ability to be able to speak with clarity so others can understand. You know, this is common fair for preachers to say, but we live in an enormously narcissistic age. And it's all about me. It's all about me. And how I understand it, and how I get it, and how I believe it, and what's true for me, my truth. You hear that all the time, you know. The dean of my seminary once said, their next brilliant remark will be their first. <laughs> he was a little ticked off about something, but he, he said it, right? So these stories point us to that idea. So, I would guess that the, that the lessons to ponder for us this week are, what practical wisdom do you have to share with others? Do you have any proverbs that you live by that are good and life-giving? Uh, how are you thinking and do... I, we, we have a very wonderful work at St. Luke's Church, you know, the food pantry program. But I am always, amazingly, and have been during my ministry, uh, amazed at how much a lot of you do outside the church, which is wonderful. Good works, good things. Help, helping people, you know? Abuse children, cancer society, uh, visiting people who are dying, you know? Being, part, being on boards of organizations that are trying to do 
make the world a better place. That's what James is talking about. So keep on keeping on there. And uh, understand, too, always that when God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. Amen. Amen.